You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When we look ahead to retirement, one big question, big, is are you doing everything you can to maximize your social security benefits and save for the future? It's time to make sure your plan is rock solid. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more about specific ways to do just that with a complimentary wealth checkup. Using these decorating ideas from the rest of our home, where we mix patterns, mix ideas, where we're thinking about how the furnishings kind of make us feel and what just delights our eye. There's no reason your kitchen should be left out of that conversation. And the sooner you start to include it in the way you might do something in the rest of the house, the sooner it's going to feel like a lovable room. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So if you are a longtime listener of the show or even a not so longtime listener, you probably know that I love cooking. I love spending time in the kitchen. It is the place where I relax after a long day with a glass of wine and usually some New York Times sheet pan recipe that I mess around with enough to make my own. It brings my blood pressure down to normal. And it turns out I am not the only one. A study from 2021 found that cooking not only makes us more relaxed, it gives us a chance to think more deeply about our lives and our capabilities during psychologically challenging times. And of course, we have all had enough of those the past few years. The kitchen that I am cooking in these days is a fairly new one for me. My husband and I moved to Philly during COVID into an apartment that we got renovated. And the opportunity to actually create a space, but particularly a kitchen from scratch, was incredibly daunting. Every single choice. Did we want quartz countertops or something else, painted cabinets or bare wood, an induction cooktop or gas burners? I know they're controversial now, but I was making this decision a while ago and so on and so on. And what made it so weighty was the fact that with every decision came a price tag. Kitchen renos are really expensive. According to a 2022 report from Remodeling Magazine, a mid-range major kitchen remodel costs an average $80,000. And that means making a mistake is something that you really don't want to do. But here's a little bit of welcome news. My guest today says you don't have to do everything in order to create the kitchen or the bathroom or the bedroom or whatever the part of the house that you happen to be working on that you want. She says that little changes can go a very long way, and she's written a book about the little changes that make the biggest difference. Many of you probably know Sophie Donaldson. She was the editor-in-chief of House Beautiful. She's appeared On air as a design expert on Today, GMA, Open House, she's led creative and brand direction for businesses like Curbed and See Wonder, and her new book, Uncommon Kitchens, a revolutionary approach to the most popular room in the house, 
explores how we can make our kitchens feel more loved. Sophie, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. Jean, thank you so much for having me. Of course. You started this book in the middle of renovating your own kitchen. What was it about that project that made you, at what was undoubtedly a very crazy time, decide to take on a book, which is crazy (laughs) in and of itself? (laughs) I know there's nothing like a kitchen renovation to make writing a book seem easy. It's true. (laughs) I was really dissatisfied with the process. I noticed that there were a lot of rigid rules and ideas around kitchen design, that there were a lot of options out there, but a lot of them pointed in the same direction. And I was sort of dissatisfied with how weighty and heavy and exhausting and scary it felt. I love design. I love thinking about how we live. I love being open-minded and open to new ways of doing things. And I found the kitchen probably the most difficult room I've ever encountered. And I wanted to dissect why that was. Why was kitchen renovation both something that people wanted so deeply, but also was an incredibly disturbing force in, in the lives of people that could afford to do it. And so, yeah, I started to think about that. And I was noticing a a real difference between the trends and the ideas that were happening in North America and what was going on in Europe. And of course, there's all sorts of, of places that we can point to these differences in an age of globalization, these things becoming more similar. But in this room in particular, the points of view cleaved very differently. And I wanted to see if there was also something that we could learn from the old world that would make our new world lives easier. You wrote, and this is a quote, that the whole thing was so gorgeous, it nearly haunted me. And I agree with you, by the way, it is gorgeous. But what's haunting about it? I think that part of this is our desire for a beautiful kitchen. And and when we start to think about this for ourselves, it's so driven by image. It's so driven by the pictures that we see on Instagram or on Pinterest or even kitchens that we have in our imaginations or from our childhood, but they're these visions. And I think when that vision doesn't sort of line up with your life, it it can feel really discordant and bizarre that like there's this beauty or this promise that a new kitchen or a beautiful kitchen offers. And then there's (laughs) your kitchen, which is a hot mess. <laughs> my kitchen <laughs> is a hot mess. And even when my children aren't around or are busier at school, I'm still just completely flummoxed by keeping kitchen in a way that makes me feel good, which for me, it's not. I talk a lot about the Clorox aesthetic, right? This idea that there's sort of like a kitchen that smells constantly like Clorox wipes and people that really like to keep their counters completely immaculate and clean and nothing on them. And then there's a more kind of like artful and creative ways to do a kitchen. I live in one of those where I do like things in the counters. I love objects. I love beauty. And so I find a lot of ways to integrate that in the kitchen. But anyway, you're faced with sort of this image and then the reality of living in a space that is so high traffic, that is so action-oriented and is never still. There's so much comes in and out of the kitchen, people, produce, refuse. It's kind of wild how much action the kitchen gets. The last time we did a kitchen, my husband and I, about 10 years ago, we renovated the kitchen at our beach house in Long Beach Island. We put in black granite countertops. And I swear... I really thought that they were going to come in honed, but they came in shiny, and the project (laughs) was well over time and over budget anyway, so I didn't make a stink about it, but I have hated them since (laughs) 
the day we put them in. And this summer, as we're starting on a, a small renovation at that house, we're, we're actually putting in an elevator because people in my family are having trouble getting up the stairs. I'm actually going to get rid of them. <laughs> what are the mistakes that people tend to make? And how do we get in front of them? Well, congratulations, first of all, on getting rid of something vexing to you. I think that before I can talk about the mistakes, I can talk about one thing that you can get right. And it's exactly what you said. Most people don't need an entirely new kitchen. What they need is to get rid of a pain point that just won't go away unless a little bit of demo is involved. And I feel you on those shiny countertops. And it's not even that something goes in and out of trend or out of style or what the right color is or what it should be or what's good for resale. It's like, how does it make you feel? Awful. It makes me feel awful. I keep Mrs. Myers in business. And it's a good thing that I like all the scents that her sprays come in because I order by the gallon. <laughs> that's the thing is that if you can really pinpoint something that's truly painful or ugly, and it is something that you can replace, change, or upgrade, that's a fine place to start. Often you don't need more than that. Honestly, the expanse that countertops take up, it's very much like a comforter on a bed, right? Like you can truly create a fresh looking bedroom by getting another blanket or comforter or even a tapestry or a beautiful piece of cloth that goes over your bed. It makes this remarkable change. You can do the same thing by instead of using your comforter, pulling it down and showing the sheets for their nice color, a nice pattern, like because it takes up so much space in the bedroom. In the kitchen, I would say the floors and the countertop are two of those outside of the cabinetry. And the cabinetry, of course, is where you clock in at, you know, in renovations, cabinetry amounts about 30% of your spending. That's the one that people try to wrestle with and decide whether they can live with their cabinetry, repaint it, change the doors, reface it, take the doors off. What are all the options before replacing the cabinetry? Because it's so onerous, right? But anyway, countertops are one of them. So I think that's a great place to start. Listen, there's a lot of ways to do a kitchen refresh. And there's little ways that I can talk to you about later, which are things that can be done right away, this hour, this weekend, make it happen and make you feel better. And then there's really undertaking a kitchen renovation. And as people are certainly not flipping homes anymore and they're not really reselling, we're really entering a true remodeling phase, right? So if people are going to be investing in their home, they tend to be doing it with renovations and remodels. When it comes to kitchen, there's a really big inclination to open it up. This is the phrase that gets used again and again and again. Something interesting happened during COVID, which is that people that opened it up in their downstairs where the living room attached to maybe a family room, a study, the kitchen, found themselves all in the same place with no doors to close, no place to take meetings, no privacy, and sometimes a pretty cacophonous space. It's really hard to soundproof and make noise livable when you're in a big open space, especially in a family situation. I know a lot of families that open it up and then kind of have to spend a lot of money on canvas art, floor coverings, and curtains to deafen that noise. So careful on that. There's another thing, though, that opening it up and combining rooms and making the kitchen bigger does, which is that it removes one of the primary ways that we enjoy the kitchen, which is for its intimacy. That typically, and this is always, you know, we always talk about at parties and everybody gathers in the kitchen and it's not just for the food or drink. It's often because even in a big kitchen, you often have these sort of galleys, right? There's often a big island and then there are these corridors around it. And it's sort of a safe place to talk, right? 
kitchens offer a lot of ways to appeal to people which are beyond food, beyond dining, beyond just sort of where the snacks are and where the action happens. They tend to be one of the smaller spaces in the house where they have a lot of nooks or places to be or to lean. They're also, when you're hosting or you're having friends or family over or a neighbor over, they're so universal. Everyone knows how to be in a kitchen. You're not uncomfortable in somebody else's kitchen. If you picture going to somebody's house for the first time, you often gravitate toward the kitchen. It's much less formal and it's less intimate than other rooms in the house, even a sitting room, even a family room. Maybe a deck or an outdoor space comes close to that. But kitchen is a place where people feel comfortable perching. You're not like, oh, is this your chair? <laughs> where do I sit? Like, there's not really a question about that. You're always safe to lean on their island or sit at the kitchen table. Like, there's always a place for you there. I say in the book that it's like, you know, you can bring a toddler there, you can bring your contractor there, you can bring a member of the clergy there. Like, it's always the right room to host in. So when you make it bigger, which is what people want to do, right? They're like, I love my kitchen. I want so much more kitchen, right? That's the inclination. You're getting rid of this primary feature of intimacy and closeness, which is one of the reasons we gravitate there. So beware of that, or at least consider that there should be some places that feel intimate that might have a lower ceiling. Maybe it's a, a breakfast nook, or maybe you just keep your ceiling height the way it is. And there are places where you're welcome to expand and grow, but I would say think twice on it. Sophie, in your book, you talk about four specific ways to let design drive a better kitchen experience. Can we talk through each of these? The first was employing color and pattern. Yep. And now we're seeing gray and especially these deep gray. You know, there's some new figures saying that those increase resale value or the, the potential sale of your home. Having a a uniformly white or gray kitchen doesn't also keep you from employing color or pattern. And there's a lot of ways to do that. Obviously, you can add some great dishcloths or something colorful in that way, pieces of furniture, or even just beautiful things on the counter, like a really great bowl or ceramics or something with a splash of color. These are all ways to do it. Really what color and pattern is beyond really obvious decorating advice is emotion. It's really just feeling and emotion. And that's what color and pattern do. The second thing you say to focus on is treating the kitchen as a room first. That's interesting. So this to me is really the primary takeaway of this book, which is that we are totally impeded by the service aspect of the kitchen, what the appliances do, where it is, how it functions, what it does. But cooking in the kitchen is like only a percentage of the things that we do there. It is, I, I don't have the hours on this. I would love to clock it in an average kitchen, but cooking is one of them. Making a drink, getting a glass of water, cleaning something. You work in your kitchen. I work in my kitchen. I take a lot of phone calls in my kitchen. Every project that's messy in any way, whether it's repotting a plant, if anybody's lived in an apartment or has a small space or has winter outside. The kitchen is where messy things happen. It's a utility room, but it's also filled with so much socialization, so much joy, so much puttering around. And so what I found was that there was all this emphasis on the appliances, the function, this kitchen as a workroom, that we lost sight of the fact that it is also more of a living room than the living room. And that as soon as we let go of, oh, I can't live like this unless the countertops are different or unless the cabinets are reconfigured. And we really looked at it as a place that could have art in it, could have a rug in it, could have a piece of furniture that wasn't designed for the kitchen, like an old shaker chair that you might have hanging out that could be there, which where means somebody could talk to the chef while they're cooking. They could have 
curiosities and little mementos from our life where we integrate these other parts of how we know how to decorate in the rest of the house. This to me is like written about design for over 20 years now for magazines primarily. And listen, there's a lot of the same advice we give. I'm sure you give it personal financial advice too. There's just, there's some things that work. There's some things that stick and some things we say over and over again, but using these decorating ideas from the rest of our home, where we mix patterns, mix ideas, where we have hand-me-downs, but also have new items, where we're thinking about how the furnishings make us feel and what just delights our eye. There's no reason your kitchen should be left out of that conversation. And the sooner you start to include it in the way you might do something in the rest of the house, the sooner it's going to feel like a lovable room. You talk about designing with flexibility in mind, which sounds very much like what we were really talking about, the fact that it's going to have different uses. And so I've got plenty of outlets right now under the countertop on my island because my contractor said, I'm giving you a lot. You are going to need them. And we, in fact, need them. Flexibility is something that goes wildly against how people think about kitchen design. They think they're going to choose a tile and that is going to be it. You're going to choose a countertop. It can't be changed. Yes, some of these things are built in. But there's also a lot of room there. There's a lot of room to play. Like people don't think a lot about window treatments in the kitchen. I think there's this idea that we're all making fried dumplings every night or something that's going to get everything in our life scummy. The truth is the way most (laughs) of us cook, especially when we're cooking healthy food or using induction and air fryers and all these things now, you're not cooking in a commercial kitchen, guys. Okay, not everything is going to get gross. There's nothing that can't really be washed and repaired. But listen, I have these great ikea window coverings that are like magnetic right they're like blinds and you just like clip them up magnetically they're so affordable they're on tension rods and they just add this layer of softness and practicality in the kitchen and they slip out and you can throw them in the washing machine it is the simplest thing and when i'm tired of those you know and it's the summer i do a little bamboo blind again they're from the dollar store (laughs) like i'm tacking up something and just changing it up because i feel like it being different there's times that i have rugs which again very controversial people are oh my God, gross. I can't deal. And that camp is welcome. You're totally fine to not have a rug. A floor mat might be a really nice alternative for you. But there's also a world of hose-downable, washing-machinable rugs, like Ruggable is an incredible company where you have that mat, right? And then you have the covering on top. You can throw it in the wash and you do it once a week. And it's so homey in the kitchen. It makes your feet feel great. It totally changes the atmosphere. So to me, Bringing in flowers or plants, putting a lamp on the countertop with one of your many outlets, which you can do. None of this is permanent, right? If you want to live with the lamp for a couple of days and you don't like it, take it away. If you want to hang a piece of art that's covered in glass so it's wiped downable, go ahead and maybe you change it up for a mirror at another time of year. It's wonderful in the winter, especially to bring more light into the kitchen. There's times that you need that. And then there's times in summer where it's, you know, you might be bathed in light and you don't need it as much. But there's these little things like that where I think. Those aren't permanent decisions. You don't have to feel onerous about whether you do or whether you don't. You can just try it. And if you don't like it, you can change it. And the last one I love is working around imperfect elements. My black countertops have been an imperfect element that I've been living with for 10 years. And I, my fix was just to take a very, very, very large bowl and put it down in the center of my island so that there's less space to get fingerprints on. 
I think that's perfect. I think you know, the distracting is a, is a great, like, don't look here, look there. I often say, yeah, like a great piece of art or something that you can't miss, right? Like a, a bowl of fruit or great branches so that when you walk in the kitchen or somebody else, that's what you look at. You're not looking at the countertops. I think there's ways, uh, also like chopping blocks, right? Like getting a couple of cutting boards. There's the great ones that go over the edge of the of the counter. When I've had rental kitchens, I've used those to just sort of get, get rid of that countertop vibe. But yeah, these imperfections are often, you know, it's funny when people think back to the kitchens that they really remember the kitchens of their youth or a grandmother's house or a friend's house. They were never the prettiest, the newest, or the cleanest kitchens that they remember. They were typically the kitchens that had really great pie or the kitchens where the kids were allowed to do something, right? Where they could maybe reach something or they were invited to participate or a kitchen table where people told stories or you hung out until the wee hours or played cards. Like what people remember about kitchens are not really the design elements. And it wasn't that somebody thought, okay, I have a family of four and I need four stools at the island. It's like, no, you're actually going to remember pulling up a stool from another room or adding a chair to the kitchen table. It's those imperfections that make us creative and make memorable experiences when you haven't had everything accounted for and done perfectly. Those are tend to be the things that we remember. We touched on the fact at the top of the show that kitchens can be really expensive. And so We are going to dig into the money, but before we do that, we're going to take a very quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Retirement is on the horizon, and when we talk about saving and investing to prepare for our future, we also have to talk about Social Security. It is an important part of our financial futures, but too many of us don't do enough to maximize our Social Security benefits. That's why it may be time for a wealth checkup to help make sure your strategies are the best they can be for your unique situation. Personally, I think everyone, everyone needs a checkup about 10 years out from retirement. You can schedule your complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. We are back with Sophie Donaldson, author of the new book, Uncommon Kitchens. So I read these studies, as I know you do, on how much value you get out of the improvements that you make to your home. And every year, kitchens are at the top, right? You put money into your kitchens or your baths, sometimes things like the front door or the garage door. That's money that you're likely to be able to recoup when you resell. But it's a tough time for a lot of people financially right now with interest rates up and inflation when you go to the grocery store. So when you look at the money that needs to be spent for a kitchen to make it something that you want, where do you put your dollars? Honestly, to the idea of making a kitchen for resale, absolutely screw it. I think it is the number one worst decision people make for the reason that one, why are you designing a kitchen for someone else with your money? That's insane. (laughs) And two is you're living all of these years there. You, most people don't have, they're not like, oh, in three to five years, we're reselling this. It's like, you can come up with that plan and good luck, good luck that the stars align, that it works out perfectly. And in the meantime, you're living more in this room than any other room in your house. So these decisions, you can be prudent about them. And I think there's ways, and especially working with design professionals, which can be, again, 
at a Home Depot or Lowe's. It can be a high-end interior designer, architect, contractor combination. It can be everything in between. But there's a lot of people there that can say, listen, this has great value as a material. What do you like from this? And you can split the difference. There's a lot of creative ways to do it. I think that having an idea for something and, and having your preference and then overriding that for fear that it's going to alienate a potential buyer on a timetable that you can't even name is like many, many times over far down the road of stop thinking. <laughs> stop thinking about all that and think about how in the next couple of years you're going to live here and how that's going to make you feel every day and many times a day when you're walking to that room. Listen, how it breaks down for when you're investing in here is that, like we said earlier, cabinetry, this is the big one, right? We're looking at like 30% of your spending and labor, actually like installation, around 20%. And then after that, appliances come next, countertops clock in around 10%, and it goes on and on and on from there. When people are factoring in the budget for this, <laughs> 5 to 10% of your budget should be for the overage of I don't know, something bursting, breaking, something weird found inside the walls. <laughs> COVID happens and all of a sudden it's going to take months longer for you to make this something happen. So there's a lot of question marks in there and you can protect yourself a little bit by just knowing, <laughs> knowing that that's out there. I was reading that the industry standard is about 10% of your home's value is, is typically how much people are spending on a kitchen renovation. The National Kitchen and Bath Association, the NKBA, which is the, the preeminent trade group for this, of course, they're going to want you to spend a little bit more. They suggest 15 to 20% of your total home value. So if we're looking at like a $250,000 home, it's like $37,000, $40,000 to $50,000. But you're talking about a million-dollar home, it's one hundred and fifty to $200,000. And working with a lot of kitchen designers and interior designers and architects, the high-end kitchens in homes that are one to two million over, which in most major American cities and desirable neighborhoods is often around what we're talking about, are monstrously more than that. Because something like appliances is like it's like high-end fashion, right? Like you can get something from Banana Republic or you can get it from Valentino. And it's not just it's just this better cut or cooler fabrics. It really can exponentially grow. But there are ways to hack it. Too. And there are beautiful ways to hack it. You mentioned IKEA earlier, and I follow an Instagram account for a company called Semi Handmade, and they make beautiful fronts for IKEA cabinets. Absolutely. And IKEA kitchens on their own, period, are beloved by interior designers. And shockingly, a number of years ago, IKEA had what I would say is like an A to A minus kitchen program, and they changed everything from scratch to become an A plus program. People still have it in their head that Ikea is like an H&M or a Shane or like a these disposable type materials. I will say in the kitchen category, it is unequivocally not. And that designers frequently, high-end designers use it all the time for second homes. And plenty of designers use that for a primary home because there's so many ways to do it. It's very price affordable. And there's designers there at Ikea that can help you do this. It's always a little quirky if you're in an older home or a funky home. Most homes, even new ones, have quirks to it. And that's the part where budget can go a little south or 
hiccups can happen, which is why sometimes working with your own design professional or contractor is really desired and preferred. But yeah, IKEA is an incredible place for it. And also, I, I just think you just don't have to do everything. You should really think about how you use this space and what matters to you. I think that an aesthetic choice like your black countertops isn't obvious because you notice it when you walk in the room. The countertops, you're all over it. You're using it constantly. I mean, this is a big percentage of how you feel, what you're looking at, and how you're using your kitchen. That, to me, is a, a great way to refresh. It's, it's shocking how much a new countertop will do for a space. In terms of appliances, there's a lot of workhorse appliances out there that some of them suck more energy than they need to. Refrigerators is a place where upgrading makes sense because they're sucking too much energy for the way that they're cooling. But honestly, stoves and ranges, a lot of them perform really well from 30 years ago and before. Like, truly the way things were made back in the day, as we look at clothing, as we look at automobiles, there's so many places in which this is true. The standards of craftsmanship and quality and the ability to repair them before things got really digital, honestly, were pretty good. And I would just, I would think twice about it. If it's, if it's burning your food and it's harming things and you're spending money to repair the quirks of your appliances, okay. But if it's, ain't broke, don't fix it. I subscribe to that, especially when it comes to appliances. I think that's a place where desire gets in the way of actually necessity. And there's not always a rapid quality of life improvement, with the exception of the dishwasher. <laughs> I think dishwasher is another place where when you do upgrade that, you're like, oh, world of difference. It feels really good. You mentioned floors earlier. Are floors something that you replace and that makes a big difference? And can you replace a floor without like tearing apart your entire house? Well, it's funny. Sometimes floors have to be replaced. So if you're changing the footprint of your cabinetry, right, where the cabinetry meets the floor is like the floor is pretty much going to have to be replaced or relayed. Patching it together isn't something any contractor really wants to do. So if you're changing your island or your cabinetry, your floors will happen. It wouldn't be the first thing I go to, especially if you have an island or a kitchen table in your space. It's just not one of the places I would go. I would really look at refinishing cabinet doors. I think it's one of these things that can be done, can be done really well. I say do it professionally. There's places that do it. They take them off. They professionally spray finish them. So you're you're getting this fingerprint proof finish on them. And again, huge expanse of space, huge change. I did that the last time and it wasn't my idea. It was a designer that I had hired. I was just going through my divorce. I was a mess. And I moved into a house that like had no charm and personality. And all I said was cozy it up. And she took the cabinet doors off and had them sprayed with a beautiful farrow-in-ball paint before farrow-in-ball was trendy in the U.S. Those cabinets did not need anything for 15 years. They lasted and lasted and lasted. So I am all for that. What room are you tackling next? I think this is all <laughs> amazing advice, but as we move on and think about the rest of our homes, how would you say to take this information and apply it to the rest of our space? Sure. I think one of the greatest compliments I've received about the book is that a friend of mine was like, this isn't a book about kitchens at all. And it, it's true. It's really, it's a book about changing our mindset of how we live and maneuver in our space and how we think about it and what it means to us and how we allow ourselves the grace to live with imperfection and to find beauty and joy in that space when we don't have the budget or when we don't have the bandwidth. Having the budget's one thing. Having the bandwidth to even think about this stuff 
listen, I don't, Jean, <laughs> right now. I don't have the bandwidth to do <laughs> big house projects. I've got other things on my mind. But what I do want to take away is that idea of flexibility. This is something that I wrote about. I, I wrote an op-ed for the Times at the very, when we were pandemic babies. It was the very beginning, I think it was March or April, about just how we have to tussle with our space a little bit more intimately. People were at home for the first time for much longer. And it's like, I created a basement office. And you're like, yeah, are you super excited to go to work? in the basement where there's not enough light and and you do what you have to do but people tried things and then they tried again right they said mm-hmm. actually i don't want to be down there like i work so much i actually want to work from my bedroom where it's kind of bright kind of a weird vibe you're like i don't really want the bed in the background but i want to be near a window right i want to move myself to where i'm looking forward to being in the morning and so i think as we look at our homes being less rigid about what is supposed to go where how it's supposed to be what it's supposed to do is something that we can all benefit a lot from just try it out drag a chair that was in one room to another Move a plant to a place that it wasn't. Change the orientation of your furniture, of your objects, of your plants, of your art. Just switch it up and see how it makes you feel. You don't have to keep it. It's very easy to switch back. I sometimes love how like a partner or a child will come in and be like, whoa, (laughs) big difference. (laughs) It sort of perks you up and, and makes you more intimate and aware of how we live in our space. I think it's just important to realize that as we grow and change as humans, as should our homes, and our homes should reflect the evolution that we all feel as the seasons change, as our moods change, as our careers change, as our families change, like let it flow and let it move with you. Don't be so this is how it should be and rigid. And I think you'll find that it just allows a little bit, yeah, more ease and grace in all of our lives. I love it. Where can our listeners go to find more of this and more from you? I hope that they'll all buy the book, as they should, Uncommon Kitchens. You can get it wherever books are sold. But what else would you like them to do? Sure. Well, come see me on Instagram because I'm posting not just about the book, but all sorts of fun things. So Sophie Dow, D-O-W, for you financial people out there like Dow Jones, but no relation. Sophie Dow is my Instagram handle. And you can Google me, Sophie Donaldson, and check out my website. And I love bookshop.org. I have to shout out there as a great way to support local booksellers and still get it shipped to your door, which is really great. And if you go to my website and Instagram, you can also sign up for a free little signed book plate. So in lieu of doing a book tour around and leaving my family and my little boys behind, I'm just doing it in the mail. So tell me something about your kitchen or who you're buying the book for, and I'll write a hand little inscribed note. Amazing. Thanks so much for doing this with us today. Jean, thanks. That was fun. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. 
And we're back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, joins us for this segment. So, Julia, how much do I hate the black countertops at the beach? Oh, my goodness. So much. It's like every time we're at the beach, it's like, ugh, the countertop. I mean, I really didn't get to ask Sophie what I should replace them with, even though we're on this track to replace them right now. My big fear because I made a mistake the last time and they were not inexpensive. They weren't the most expensive, but they weren't inexpensive. My big fear is that I'm going to make a mistake and hate them again. So what do you think is going to be still good 10 years from now? I think like maybe for the island, you could just do a big fat butcher block like something that will hide it will hide grains of sand you know because I feel like that's part of the problem and then do a surround that's like a cementy color or a white like a grayish cementy color do you think that butcher block gets too like beat up over time or is that just part of the charm I think it's part of the charm it may be a little too farmy for the beach I don't know I'm not a design expert by any way, shape, or form, despite how much HDTV I watch. <laughs> you just think about it for me and, and get back to me on that. Let's move on. We've got a few questions. All righty. Our first question today comes to us from Andrea. She writes, Hello, Hermoney team. I have been a dedicated listener for a few years, and I really appreciate the topics you cover every week and the variety of guests. The company I work for is an ESOP, and while I read through our documents explaining what an ESOP is and how it works, I'm still confused on the details. How does a company choose to become employee-owned, and how are the shares allocated? I believe it is based on salary, and there are only a set number of shares. As the company grows, does the number of shares per employee grow? The company I work for is an engineering services firm, and it seems there are many companies in this field who are ESOPs. I can tell anecdotally that we have a high retention rate, so it seems to be a win-win for both employers and employees. I've been at my company for almost four years and will be fully vested in six. I plan to stick with the company beyond that time and possibly to retirement, so I will have a long time until I can cash out. I am meeting with a financial advisor in a few weeks and hope they can give me insight into how much I can expect to have once I cash out for retirement. Thanks for all the hard work you all put into the show each week. We've been doing this show now for seven years, and I don't think we've ever talked about an ESOP. So let's talk about some ESOP basics. An ESOP is, as was pretty clear from the question, it's an employee stock ownership plan. It is an employee benefit plan that gives the people who work for the company an ownership interest in the company in the form of shares of company stock. And the company for doing this gets a variety of tax benefits and that sort of lines up with their interests. These plans tend to come up when there's some sort of a succession in the offing to allow employees to buy shares of the company's stock. And the way it works is that, in general, the company sets up a trust and puts the newly issued shares of stocks into that trust. 
if the shares of the company are already in existence, it can put cash into the trust and the trust can buy existing company shares or it can have the trust borrow money to buy company shares. And it has to have some sort of a fiduciary trustee, which means somebody who has the best interest of the shareholders in mind running things so that all employees get a fair deal employees who are paid a lot and employees who are paid a little. And the way it works is that you get a grant of stock, a grant of shares, and you vest over time. You're issued a certain number of shares, but you have to work for a number of years before you fully own those shares. You asked the question about how the shares are allocated. And it can be done in a number of different ways depending on the plan itself. It can be done based on salary. It can be done based on longevity. There are a number of different permutations, which is why it's really important to talk to your company rather than just reading on the internet about how these things work, but talk to your company about how your particular ESOP works. One of the big questions is what happens if you want to leave the company? If you are a fully vested employee, and it seems like you are intent on becoming one of those, if you retire or you resign from the company, then the firm basically purchases your vested shares back from you. You get the money either in a lump sum or typically over five years in a stream of payments. And the company then has those shares and they can redistribute those shares to new people so they don't have to issue more or they can retire them. What you can't do is when you leave, you can't take the stock with you. But it's a great wealth building mechanism. I'm glad that you are with a company that is thinking about you in this way. And it can be a really fantastic way to set yourself up for the future, but you deserve to know what the underlying value of these shares is likely to be so that you can do your financial planning around those shares. You mentioned that you're meeting with a financial advisor. I hope that you're meeting a financial advisor who is very well oriented with this company and this plan. You should be talking to somebody who is not learning on your dime. How do they find somebody who is already well-versed in that? Great, great question. You find somebody by talking to your colleagues. So if you've got a boss at the company, if you've got a mentor, talk to that person about do they have a financial advisor that they work with and is that financial advisor already familiar with the plan? That way, if you've got somebody that they're recommending that they're happy with, they'll be able to just pick up and take it from there. Make sense? Yeah, totally. Last thing to know is that when you leave the company is often a big question for people. What happens then? And if you are fully vested and it's clear that that's something that you intend to be, if a fully vested employee resigns from the company or retires, then the firm typically purchases those vested shares back from them. You get some money either in a lump sum or in a five-year typically payout, and the company can redistribute your shares. Or 
it can retire them. Let's move on to the next question, Jules. Awesome. Our next question comes from Irma. She writes, Hi, Jean. Last summer, I purchased a co-op in Queens, New York, 20% down out of my pocket and IRA. Balance is a mortgage loan. Question. Should I add more to the principal or stash in my emergency fund? P.S. I'm over 50, single, and I have no children. Thank you. So first of all, Irma, congrats on the house. That's very, very exciting. So I sort of ran a few numbers for you. And here's the either or when it comes to this question about whether you should pay down a mortgage or you should stash in your emergency fund or you should invest in your retirement account, right? It's all a trade-off. And the answer to the trade-off is where are you going to get the greatest return on your money? So right now mortgages or when you took out this mortgage, and I just, you said last summer, so I ballparked July of 2022, mortgage rates were at 5.5%. If you can itemize, then you can deduct interest on a mortgage of up to $750,000. And basically, a mortgage of that size might be worth itemizing for. It would mean that the real cost of that mortgage to you is really about 4%. But whether it's 4% or whether it's five and a half percent, the question is, can you beat that or can you come close to it? If you can beat that return, then you really shouldn't prepay your mortgage. You should either put the money in your emergency savings account if it's looking slightly anemic, if it's looking slightly underfunded, or you should simply take the money and you should invest it for your retirement by stashing it in whatever retirement account vehicle you have. Now, that said, I really like the idea of being out of a mortgage before you retire. I am 58 years old. I am not going to have a mortgage when I retire. I've been planning for that for a, a long, long time. And the reason I like that idea is that when your income drops by a lot, not having the pressure of having to pay a mortgage is a really nice thing. So one way you can sort of hack this is by trying to make one extra mortgage payment each year. It reduces a 30-year fixed rate mortgage to about a 24-year mortgage. So it'll get you out a few years early and you may be able to stash some of the money towards some of your other goals as well. Make sense? Totally. All right. You don't have a mortgage yet, but when you get there, you'll know exactly what to do. Exactly. Preparing for my future here. I see what you're doing <laughs> having me on the show. If you've got any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. Jules, thank you. Thanks for having me. Speak soon. Okay. We're going to take a break. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of Mind Shift. 
the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with your money tip of the week. Even though inflation is, thankfully, on the way down, food prices are still up. So where can we get the most bang for our buck at the grocery store? Carrots. Well, carrots and cabbage and tomatoes, zucchini, celery, onions, oranges, bananas, frozen or canned vegetables are at the top of the quality to price index. So buying these things is not only good for you, but these are some of the best money savers in the fruit and vegetable aisle. For more tips on saving money during inflation, visit hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Sophie Donaldson for her tips on making our kitchens and our homes feel more loved. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.